Behold yon band, whose lightning gleams afar, Tis Butler's corps, so lately crowned with fame. By freedom roused, they bravely lead the war, And pluck the honors of a spotless name. On Maumee's banks they met their steel-clad foes. Loud shouts proclaim the contest now begun. With bayonets fixed, they front to front oppose, whilst clouds of smoke obscure the distant sun. And cursed war away, let peace return once more. Come, gentle peace, we'll meet thy fond embrace. Thou hast the means our blessings to restore and raise again the smile on beauty's face. Welcome to the Foot of the Rapids. In this opening poem, simply titled Lines on the Death of James Newman, and they will be pertinent to our story today in many, many ways. As today is a memorial episode, and ultimately everything will be rooted back to the day James Newman died. James Newman, recently promoted to sergeant, was killed during the War of 1812 on May 5th, 1813, just to the east of Fort Meigs, in one part of a climactic day of fighting in the area surrounding the foot of the rapids. Two armies, the British and a large separate force of American Indians, had surrounded Fort Meigs in late April 1813. By May 3rd, the siege lines drawing ever closer, the British had crossed to the American side of the Maumee River and established a new artillery position 435 close yards from the fortified American camp. On the morning of May 5th, American General William Henry Harrison ordered the position taken. Roughly 350 Americans, including James Newman's unit, the Pittsburgh Blues, formed up and exited the fort's southern gates, stealing down a steep-cut ravine just to the southeast and out of sight of the British until they were in position. Once ready, the Americans ascended the slope and then advanced across about 80 yards of open ground under fire. It was in this assault that James Newman was felled, but the Americans were ultimately successful, enduring British counterattacks and a flanking action by the American Indians. A fighting retreat ensued and the U.S. forces did make it back with 42 prisoners. The bulk of British and Canadian troops retreated to the opposite bank and the guns were silenced. But that is the short story of James Newman. Today, our efforts will happily focus on another hero, a man named Robert Trumbull, as we celebrate his brief life. 
Rob Trumbull was an absolute lion in the 1812 community and recently passed away in the opening stages of this winter. He was the supreme member of the American command staff for the living historians who teach and reenact the War of 1812. Well-read, well-traveled, Rob was always ready for a conversation to relate a story or inform the curious of some minute or forgotten details. Rob was a frequent sight here at Fort Meigs and a member of our community. An enthusiast for antique firearms and military equipment, his personal collection was impressive and he touched and inspired many, many lives. Rob quite literally helped write the book on military music in the West of 1812, research that this host finds absolutely indispensable to his own work at Fort Meigs. And so there is a great bit of gratitude felt and a debt to be paid. And so we thought as a way of honoring and paying tribute to Robert Trumbull, we would today have an excited look at the very last bit of research he was conducting on the history of Fort Meigs, take it up and hopefully conclude that work in either proving or disproving his final theories. All this will follow. Welcome to the foot of the rapids. Rob had been reading a book on the history of the Pennsylvania National Guard and its lineage back to the state and community militia systems of this nation's past. There was a short passage about the closing of an armory near Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and mentioned briefly, nearly in passing, that among its old articles and wares was an ancient cannon that had reputedly been taken from Fort Meigs of all places. Huh. Greensburg sits just southeast of Pittsburgh, and Rob was quick to point out in his mind that there was a unit serving at Fort Meigs during the war named the Greensburg Rifles. Huh. Upon further investigation, a recent news article was uncovered about an 1812 cannon being moved into semi-display settings at Greensburg City Hall, complete with photograph. It was odd-looking, brass, with huge flaring dolphins, that part on top of the barrel that looks like handles and can indeed be used in craning up the gun. The Greensburg Rifles were a small but well-noted unit at Fort Meigs and within the Northwestern Army, and would have been in line just beside the Pittsburgh Blues when they charged and captured the gun emplacements on May 5th. This is the poem and death we discussed at the very opening. It was Rob's hypothesis that this cannon, which now sits nearly forgotten in a civil government basement, was British in origin, brought to the siege at Fort Meigs, had been captured by the Greensburg Rifles on May 5th, 1813, and was awarded as a war trophy to their commanding officer at the end of their term of enlistment and brought home in triumph to this local community. 
and that it then passed down the line of a family and finally into public hands, a symbol now of the people, their story, their fortitude. If all true, this would be a remarkable find, perhaps the only known cannon to have been fired at or from Fort Meigs. Something from the war here that we can see and touch, investigate and smile upon. Rob seemed quite excited by this find, an excitement that was very contagious. We now examine this hypothesis and if the paperwork supports the 200-year-old story. The Greensburg Rifles had existed as a volunteer military company before the war, but on June 6, 1812, they offered their service to the United States national government as war was looming. That offer was accepted with a return letter dated July 15th from the Secretary of War. 56 officers and men, led by a very prominent attorney, Captain John B. Alexander. They were assigned to the Northwestern Army as the situation in the West looked grim after the fall of Detroit. Ultimately, General William Henry Harrison ordered them to Franklinton, Ohio. Traveling together with the Pittsburgh Blues, they would partake in the ugly Mississinawa campaign into the Indiana Territory in December of 1812. A frostbitten expedition, if anything can be said. After recovering in January of 1813, Captain John B. Alexander was promoted to the rank of Major and would lead a brand new entity called the Independent Battalion. And this would be his Greensburg Rifles, now led by Lieutenant Peter Drum, the Pittsburgh Blues, whom we mentioned at the opening, and the Petersburg Volunteers up from Virginia. This independent battalion arrived here at Fort Meigs on February 18, 1813, shortly after its founding. They were by all accounts a solid unit that General Harrison trusted and called upon frequently for detached and extra duty. This faith is exemplified by the double assignment on May 5th of escorting the arriving reinforcements into the fort from the west and then turning and assaulting the British batteries to the east, where the battalion anchored the center of the American line. The uh, hypothesis being that this attack resulted in the capture of the cannon at the center of our investigation. Later in the summer, the battalion was divided up, some then defending Fort Stevenson in early August. The Greensburg Rifles and the Pittsburgh Blues were then honorably discharged on August 28, 1813, from the Sandusky River after a 12-month enlistment and began the march home. Parades and dinners in Pittsburgh in early September, the same day the Navy was trading broadsides out on Lake Erie. This is the basic history, in part, of the Greensburg Rifles we understand just from the information here at Fort Meigs. And one must remember the battalion's commander, Major John B. Alexander.
Let's turn our attention now to the Mystery Cannon itself, sitting today in Greensburg, Pennsylvania. According to an inscription on the gun tube itself, it was cast in Seville, Spain on September 26, 1793. How could a cannon from the sunny southern half of Spain end up in a swamp in northern Ohio 20 years later? In British hands, nonetheless, 400 yards from a smelly American mud heap like Fort Meggs. Well, it is conceivable that the gun was in use somewhere in Spain and captured by the British during the Peninsular Wars of the great conflict with Napoleon. The cannon is described as a large or heavy six-pounder, meaning it was slightly larger in bore than traditional British armament. Its inability to fit well with standard cast British artillery rounds, it would have been an odd instrument, and very conceivably, perhaps shipped off to the Empire's more provincial domains, i.e. Canada, to make way for the active and veteran army and their more professional activities in mainland Europe. This oddly large caliber would have given the gun a degree of windage when fired with a British six-pound ball, and if used by the enfilading Eastern Battery by British gunners at the first siege of Fort Meigs in May 1813, as the hypothesis includes, this could go a long and interesting way in explaining the wild inaccuracy of the shots from that position as reported by American observers inside the fort. Windage is the amount of play inside the barrel a projectile has when fired and affects accuracy to a degree. One reason why smoothbore muskets are so difficult in finding an exact target. So one part of our hypothesis could be explained, though without a terrific amount of actual evidence. Let's look at a few written documents. Our first step in supporting evidence comes from a secondary source, The History of Westmoreland County, Pennsylvania, Volume 1, published in 1906. It retraces the area's activities during the war years of 1812, and in part gives a short description of the Greensburg Rifles. In this passage, we have a brief biography of the unit's commander, Major John B. Alexander. It reads, his military services were largely in the Northwestern Territory. His battalion captured a six-pound cannon of great weight, made, as its inscription indicates, by the Spaniards in the 18th century. At the close of the war, Major Alexander brought this prize to Greensburg, and it is yet a valued possession of his nephew, General Richard Coulter. In 1824, the Major and his company turned out to do honors to Lafayette on the occasion of the patriotic Frenchman's visit to Westmoreland County. History of Westmoreland County, 1906. It is spelled out here in plain English. The cannon, Spanish, 18th century, brought home to Greensburg a war trophy. It even mentions the old company mustered in for Lafayette's visit in 1824. Incidentally, the last time the old gun is said to have fired. There is an even more detailed writing on the life of Major John B. Alexander, appearing a few years later, 
In the Memoirs of the Bench and Bar, Westmoreland, published in 1924, recall that Alexander was a prominent attorney before and after the War of 1812. This passage also contains confirmation that the prize cannon was captured at Fort Meigs. It reads, in 1806, he organized a military company called Greensburg Rifles. In the War of 1812, he commanded this company under General Harrison and rendered distinguished service in the fighting at Fort Meigs in Sandusky. At the close of the war, Alexander, who had been commissioned major, returned to Greensburg, bringing with him a six-pound brass cannon, which his command had captured, which is now in the possession of his grandnephew, General Richard Coulter. Memoirs of the Bench and Bar, 1924. You may notice here a slight difference between the two paragraphs. The first mentioned Major Alexander's nephew, General Richard Coulter, and the second excerpt names his grandnephew, General Richard Coulter. This is not a mistake. Major Alexander's nephew was indeed General Richard Coulter of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, who served in the Army of the Potomac during the American Civil War. His son, Richard Coulter Jr., rose to the rank of Major General and served in Europe during the First World War, also one of America's very first professional football players in the 1890s, also a native of Greensburg, Pennsylvania, and part of a long and rich military lineage the area holds, his daughter even serving as a wasp during World War II. But taken together, these two passages appear like cement proof of what Rob Trumbull had reckoned before his death. But we need more. Our problem is the separation of time between these 20th century writings and the War of 1812. These publications come a full 93 and 111 years after the Greensburg Rifles returned home. I think we are all aware of how stories can twist slightly over 100 years of time. What was once... There goes Major Alexander. There goes Major Alexander's cannon. He fought at Fort Meigs. Might one day become... There goes Major Alexander. There goes Major Alexander's cannon he got at Fort Meigs. Let us dive deeper into the literature and explore our final secondary source for the hour. This being the earliest of the three, coming from 1891, here from the Biographical and Historical Cyclopedia of Indiana and Armstrong Counties, Pennsylvania, closer at 78 years after the fact, and again on the life of Major Alexander. When the war with Great Britain commenced, he collected a company of volunteers and served with great credit under General Harrison in several engagements with the British and Indians. The name of his company was the Greensburg Rifles. After his return, he returned to the practice of law, rose to the head of the Greensburg Bar, and obtained a lucrative practice in that and the adjoining counties. He raised a company of artillery which was the model company of the military division in which the militia of the state was divided and was truly a fine one in appearance. The men were handsomely uniformed, were all over six feet tall, 
and their two handsome brass cannons were drawn by large gray horses. Biographical and Historical Cyclopedia of Indiana and Armstrong Counties, Pennsylvania, 1891. Here now, there is no mention of the unit returning with their war trophy. It focuses on the Major's legal career resuming immediately. It does, interestingly, mention that the volunteer outfit becomes an artillery unit after the peace the same ensemble that turned out for General Lafayette. And not one cannon, but two brass pieces in their possession. Even if they had brought a prize home from Fort Meigs, they would have had to have a second forged or acquired somehow. And if Major Alexander, a man of reputed wealth, had one cannon made, why not have two, leaving zero withdrawn from the battlefields at Fort Meigs? He appeared in full view of twice or thrice his force. His men, however, were ordered to charge, which they did in the most gallant manner, and in a moment had possession of the batteries and the guns were dismounted. The enemy were pursued some distance into the woods. And Bradford's company of the 17th and Major Alexander with the volunteers attacked the enemy's batteries on the right flank, carried them, drove off a superior force of the enemy, and killed or took prisoners, the greater part of the two best companies, on the British service. The detachment formed said it was amazing to see how the blast plowed up the earth about our heels and with what little effect. When our sortie was crowded with success, the eastern battery destroyed, and 30 artillerymen and two officers taken prisoners, our soldiers continued to drive the Indian till we were beguiled about three-quarters of a mile into the woods, and the enemy began to outflank and get between us and our work. On the same day, two small batteries in our rear were stormed. The guns spiked, and two lieutenants and 40 privates of the veteran 41st Regiment taken prisoners by Colonel Miller. With a detachment of the regular infantry and volunteers are successfully General Sortie under the command of Colonel John Miller, which resulted in the capture of about 42 of the enemy and the routing of their Indian allies, with a considerable loss of American troops again, and wounded. On our left, Lieutenant Campbell, with about 40 men captured from British, 40 privates, and two lieutenants who were in the act of crossing the river. Up to 300 who left the fort, party 83 were buried them. killed or wounded. Captain Holt, with a party of the artillery, crossed over the river after the shot and shells that the British left. He found several, fetched them over, and one large pair of gun wheels. Major Amos Stoddard of the artillery sustained the reputation which they had acquired at Mississinewa and their gallant associates, the Petersburg, Virginia Volunteers, and Lieutenant Drum's Greensburg Rifles discovered equal intrepidity. William Henry Harrison. This swirling mass of voices, all derived from eyewitnesses of the attack on the enfilading battery that our independent battalion assaulted and defeated, from which our mystery cannon must originate to prove the hypothesis. All this fits 
for a single purpose. No one mentions the capture and seizure of this weapon. Many state there was a taking of prisoners, approximately 40-odd individuals. One primary source, Alexander Bourne, claims the cannon were spiked. Another, our engineer Wood, claims they were dismounted. And one British source, John Stevens, though not read, makes claim that the American Indians recaptured the disputed battery in the last counterattack as the Americans retreated. And over the following days, no one among the Americans mentions going out and bringing this prize in from the battlefield after the siege. They do mention going out and collecting and burying the dead, collecting cannonballs and carriage wheels, but no cannon. The artillery company at Fort Meigs does not list new guns being turned over to them. And such a curious Spanish piece surely would have attracted attention worth a line or two. Most damning of all to our hypothesis are words coming from the high command of both armies themselves. The Pittsburgh Blues, commanded by Captain Butler and those of Greensburg by Lieutenant Drove of Major Alexander's Battalion, having performed their services, the General hereby presents them an honorable discharge. The General has ever considered this corps as the first in the Northwest Army. Equal in point of bravery and subordination, it excelled in every other of those attainments which form complete and efficient soldiers. In battle, in camp, and on the march, their conduct has done honor to themselves and their country. A.H. Holmes, Assistant Adjutant General. These lines are drawn from the general orders from August 28, 1813, the day the Greensburg rifles were discharged. Though they were written and delivered by Adjutant Holmes, the orders and sentiment would have come from General Harrison himself at headquarters. We can see here Harrison held great esteem for the contribution of these soldiers having staved off disaster in the spring of the year. But despite his gratitude, Though this would have been the moment, he in no way mentions gifting their commander or the unit a cannon as a token of his appreciation. From here, they marched home to Pennsylvania. And across Lake Erie, Brigadier General Henry Proctor made his official report on the bombardment of Fort Meigs and notes concerning the artillery. Before the ordnance could be withdrawn from the batteries, I was left with Tecumseh and less than 20 chiefs and warriors. I have, however, brought off all of the ordnance and indeed have not left anything behind. Part of the ordnance was embarked under the fire of the enemy. Proctor's words come from his letter to Governor General Prevost, dated May 14, 1813, and are particularly damning to the theory. He clearly states he brought off all his artillery and nothing was left behind. Some may object, saying, of course Proctor would say that in an effort to not look bad before his commander. But I think many, in America at least, give Henry Proctor undue discredit 
To the clear-headed who know the geography of the area, it is interesting his remarks that part of the ordinance was embarked under fire from the Americans. And here he must be referring to this eastern or enfilading battery, where our mystery cannon was situated. This, on the southern side of the river, would have been loaded on ship where the Maumee River widens at what is now Orleans Park, about 1,600 yards from the fort walls. This is just at the extreme range of both sides' artillery prowess, and the siege batteries opposite the fort would have been hauled back to Fort Miami and loaded on the deep draft vessels come upriver. But lack of positive proof is not evidence of a negative result. So finally, we travel to Greensburg itself in search of local evidence contemporary with the rifle units return to their homes. There was a newspaper of the time, the Greensburg and Indiana Register, which printed and circulated from 1810 to 1817. All copies from 1813 remain in existence. Surely the homecoming heroes would have been noted. Surely parading through town with a treasured war trophy captured in battle would be exalted in print. Surely our quest would come to rest in those hallowed halls. But after hours of staring at microfilm, sadly, the gun was not mentioned. Parading through Pittsburgh a few days before with their wartime companions, the Pittsburgh Blues, also garnered no mention from the existing Gazette. No observance of an artillery piece. There is seemingly no contemporary evidence that this cannon was brought home from the War of 1812. It is a strange case and coincidence, however. The Greensburg Rifles would have returned home the very same week that news was reaching the outside world of Perry's great victory on the lakes. And all area news sources are awash with blazing excitement from the American naval victory. All other news seemed forgotten and overshadowed or set aside. The road trip to the hills of Pennsylvania did yield, however, a few additional documents that bear on this case. A letter written at Fort Meigs by an officer of Greensburg, likely Lieutenant Peter Drum, to his family that remained on the home front. The letter, dated May 9th, reflects and reports on the happenings of the first siege here and does include some information not previously known. Like the other first-hand accounts we have already heard, the author mentions the sortie to the east to assault the nearby inflating battery. Quote, We took their battery and spiked the cannon, and had a hard fight of near two hours with the Indians and the British regulars. We were then ordered back to camp. Our loss was great, but the enemy's greater. Unquote. Seizure of an enemy's artillery piece would have been the ultimate grand prize for any infantry unit. Like capturing a stand of colors, there is no higher honor. We must believe that if the gun was retrieved, this would be the moment to announce the glorious news. No such mention is made. The officer later reports on the dead and wounded from the hometown company as neighboring families 
would likely be eager for the news. The note as a whole is rather somber and matter-of-fact. Another piece of literature uncovered was an additional secondary source, a few sentences that hinge and halter on a single word. An article from 1914 in the publication of the Pennsylvania National Guard borrows nearly verbatim from the 1906 publication we heard earlier. Quote, at the close of the war, he brought this prize to Greensburg, and it is yet a valued possession of the Coulter family. Unquote. If the author or authors were extremely judicious in their word choice, and we hope that writers are, you notice the phrase, at the close of the war, the close. The War of 1812 ended in 1815, a full year and a half after the Greensburg Rifles and Major Alexander came home. Can we infer that this artillery piece was acquired after the war somehow, from some surplus sale or the disarming of the lakes as per the treaty? Greensburg is much closer to Erie, Pennsylvania, than to Detroit, the main stockpile of American armament. Might this cannon have come off of Barclay's British squadron captured in September 1813? It is known that the cannon aboard those vessels were a bizarre hodgepodge of what the undersupplied Wright Division could spare for the Navy at the last minute. Another thought, might the cannon have come into the Coulter family at a much later date? It is Spanish in origin. Richard Coulter Jr was only a second lieutenant when his unit served in the Spanish-American War, another conflict known to have produced war trophies. Could he have pulled all the right strings to have had an obsolete brass artillery piece secured for preservation and brought to Greensburg? If so, it would have been only six quick years before the 1812 story developed and made its way into print in the official histories of the state of Pennsylvania. In the face of no evidence from the early 19th century and other possibilities clearly existing, we are forced to conclude that the cannon did not come from the enfilading battery here to the east of Fort Meigs. Even if it did, it does not appear to have been captured on May 5th or from any other operation involving the Greensburg rifles and it does not appear to have been brought home on the discharge march. We have no doubt the cannon is old and no doubt long housed in Greensburg, Pennsylvania, but its origins there remain a painful mystery, one we hoped the scope of this investigation would resolve, but pleased at the very least to have proved a hypothesis negative in the scientific nature that history can at times take. We feel a touch of regret and disappointment that our dear friend Robert Trumbull's final foray into Fort Meg's research did not yield a glorious prize such as this solidifying his legacy in a grand brass monument we could bring for display here beside these old wooden walls. <laughs>
perhaps a lost opportunity for rekindling magnetic interest in 1812 history for the public's eager eye. But we reaffirm here that history is not always what we wish it to be, and truth must be sought regardless of what it might say. And yet again, we are indebted to Rob, for at the very least, allowing us to be led on this adventure of research and discovery, excitement and pursuit. We the living are certainly richer for the efforts, the reading, the knowledge, and the sharing. Being so appreciated, this recording was a family effort with many contributing voices. Our thanks to Tony Clark, Martin Land, Tom Fournier, Robert Whitman, True Science, Sage Hallberg, Tony Szymanski, Robert Kubold, Doug Johnson, and Ethan Smith. To close today, in a final farewell and salute to Rob, we turn to words that came to mind immediately upon receiving news of his death. These words, written by a man who also charged across that battlefield on May 5th, 1813, towards a British cannon and in the face of blazing fire. Private Alfred Lorraine was reflecting on the end of his trials in the war and looking at the prospect of at last going home. Here I stood on the shore of the lake, high and dry, and said in my heart, O oh me, woe is past. I shall no more travel that ugly, muddy road. I shall no more flounder over the snow-drifted plains of Crawford. I shall no more shiver on the bleak banks of the Sandusky. I will hie me home to my own sunny place and perhaps live and die on its verdant banks. Little did I think that in a few years more, the house, the very house in Delaware that sheltered the benumbed and weather-beaten soldier should be his parsonage. While he should travel over the length and breadth of the plains of Crawford, not in unpeopled solitude, but beautifully spotted with farms and dwellings, in summer a boundless prospect of undulating grasses and fragrant flowers of almost every form and shade. In winter, a sea of crusted snow over which one might glide at large in his bounding jumper and in his high-wrought imagination live over his rambles. Little did I think that there, even there, I should mingle with the congregated saints, hear the shout of heaven-born souls, and least of all, that even I, the sinner, I should rejoice in the sound with a joy unspeakable and full of glory.